0: Welcome to VSI, Variation Selection Inheritance, a podcast production of the National Science Foundation's Beacon Center for the Study of Evolution in Action. I'm Randall Hayes. I'm currently hiding out in my bathroom, both because their acoustics are pretty good in here and because my wife and son are at home preparing to go out this evening to see the Monty Python musical spam a lot. so there's a lot of bustling around and noise making, so if I want to get this done before we go, I had to hide. My old buddy Corbin was always a Monty Python fan and had his own weird sense of humor. The one time that I actually ever went with him out to his dad's cabin on the on Rim in Arizona, which he talks a bit about later in the interview, he didn't bother to tell me that we'd be hiking at 7,000 feet, roughly. He and his buddy Jeff Munnick had been sort of biking and training for several weeks ahead of time, but I had not, and I had never uh, hiked or run at high altitude before, so I was pretty unprepared. Even with just a a light 55-pound pack on my back, by the end of a 10-mile hike, I was pretty much down to I will survive being the only thing that was keeping me moving and running on a continuous loop through my head. But at the same time, Corbin having played that joke on me, what he and Monik called a death hike, uh, he then took my pack and made me supper. So the double edge of that friendship has always been there. Uh, today, we'll be doing a little reminiscing about our graduate school days, but also some about what Corbin's working on now, which are these ecological projects. And then next week, we'll go into a little more detail on sort of the overlaps between our interests in genetics, evolution, and neuroscience. So years and years ago,
1: back in the day, so 15 years ago, you were not an associate professor, you were a lowly graduate student at the University of Rochester. <sighs> India. And one of the things that I've honestly never asked you was, I know you were working at Microsoft as a computer programmer, so what flipped the switch to throw you out of that and back into school? And why, of all things, evolutionary biology? That's an interesting question. So when I think about it, and I sort of
2: thought about it, I'll give the short version. As an undergrad, I was a political science major, right? But about halfway through it, I ended up taking some biology and chemistry classes and really enjoyed them. I, I never thought of myself as a natural sciences person or as a social sciences person. But you were an outdoorsman, even as yeah. a kid, right? an You said, were a yeah. fisherman. Yeah. Fishing, hiking, always enjoyed that part. But sort of getting under the hood of nature was, was a very interesting thing to me. But at the small college I went to, once you sort of got down the road on a major, you couldn't really turn around, and as a scholarship kid, I, I had very limited options. so I. Completed the degree I could get done in four years, and that was political science. But I ended up taking a lot of biology and working as just a, a flunky for the biology department, doing everything from scrubbing tanks to, to, you know, wiring up lights and stuff like this for that department. I then needed a job because I wasn't ready to do anything else, and the only skills I had at the time, much like today, it was a recession. Uh, This was like 1991. Yeah, yeah, it was a nasty recession. Engineers couldn't get jobs. Believe me, political science major couldn't get a job as anything but a broom pusher at that. Uh, uh, I found I had computer skills that I could trade on. And so through a variety of short and longer term jobs, I made money doing that. During that time, I really wondered about what I wanted to do. And I took some courses at the University of Washington. Um, they were, were mostly biology courses, I enjoyed those. I then basically took some time off after quitting the job to go hang out in Arizona in the little house my dad has in the mountains there, taking care of his dog while he was traveling abroad. And it was there, I just remember hiking on the Mugnian Rim in Arizona, which, you know, you know, is a subsidence, right, and there's it transitions from very desert to very lush and you know, mountain forest you know. Ponderosa pine, yeah. pine. Yeah, even, even to wet water species, you know, types of firs and birch and, and things like this that you just shouldn't see in the desert. But it's all because there's this little rain shadow there. And, and Anyway, so here you are, the spot where if you walk a half mile away, there's a cactus. Yet there's like Spanish moss coming kind of in from the trees.
1: Austin is like that. Yeah, Austin's like that. There's a spot where like four different biomes kind of come together and you get really weird combinations of things. Yeah. It's kind of at that point I was like, oh,
2: I think I want to be a geneticist because I want to understand how all these different species got to be the way they were. I want to understand how. You know, you can get such dramatic morphological differences between species over such a short range. And and how these occurred, you know,
1: how these came up, how these emerged. So you went into it a little bit naively. Without really knowing how deep that question was? Yes.
2: Yes. It was more a lifestyle. I imagined myself running around the woods with like a big butterfly net, scooping up butterflies. And, uh, uh, you know, being more outdoorsy versus the very enclosed and boring computer science world. I did not want to spend my life in an office staring at computer screens, which is ironic because that's basically what I do today.
1: Yeah, yeah. See, I imagined when I was when I was a kid, I imagined that being a scientist was like Johnny Quest. Yeah, right? exactly. I wanted to be Doctor Benton Quest, bouncing from around the world uh, solving people's problems for them
2: you know, I mean, I, you know you and I have spoken about this before but I think this is actually one of the biggest problems with the way we entice people into science is they watch NOVA they watch National Geographic they, they, they read books about science and all this sort of stuff and it seems exciting minute-to-minute discovery la-la-la-la-la and then when they actually start to do research they realize it is much more about careful planning, organization, note taking, administration. It's a grind. It's a grind, yeah. And it feeds on those skills that are 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 as useful for a business major as they are for a biologist.
1: Not and it has very few of those unique elements. Right, right. In in every TV show, the epidemic is solved within an hour. Yeah. yeah exactly. Exactly. And, and I think this leads to a gross misperception of
2: what you do. Yeah. So the shift to evolution in biology, I thought I would be a geneticist. It wasn't until uh, I was talking with, uh, uh, during an interview with uh, this Professor Jack Wern in Rochester, who pointed out to me that the questions I thought were genetics questions, how and why species look as, as they do, or live where they do, are really evolutionary questions. And when Jack said that to me, sort of a light bulb went off in my head and I realized the places I had looked for graduate school for the most part did not fit what I was really after. And so I, I basically said, Huh, this is I'm not g ge- gonna be a geneticist, I'm gonna be an evolutionary geneticist.
1: And that's sort of how I slid into the evolutionary biology. And that's really interesting because You know, your dad is in fact a professor Mm -hmm. of architecture, right? So you had much more of a window of what the bureaucracy of academia and what the splits between the fields, you you should have been a very informed consumer compared with my first generation students, right? And even you, and even me, right, I, I started out as a biology major. Uh, I ended off going doing neuroscience because, same, same kind of naive question, I want to know why people act the way they do. Right. And then what you find out in graduate school is that you can't approach those huge questions as a graduate student, you can only approach tiny, narrow questions. That's right. That's right. Well, I, and again, I would say...
2: The person I really needed to talk to is actually my great uncle who is a professor of psychology at Stanford because he had a much better idea of what it meant to be a research scientist. Architecture is a funny field because it sort of straddles the arts and engineering yeah, you know, my father was by training a build-a-building architect, and so that was actually why he, when he, he left academia, went back out to industry, working in industry for a number of years, he built buildings, and it was those skills that he was sort of brought back into academia for, not necessarily grand design concepts, not necessarily grand sort of models of how you build buildings, but very much how do you practically get it done, what are the basic core design elements every has how do you make buildings people friendly, those were the
1: things he recruited back for. So he was like I'm a biotech guy then?
2: Almost. Almost in some ways, yeah, it's, it's probably closer to that. But again, that's so different in how it operates. I, I, I don't know how to sort of sum it up. Um,
1: I had no clue. For me too, I came in thinking about these large questions. I ended up working on one tiny, specific little project. I worked in the visual system of stroke patients and rhesus macaques, which are the monkeys that we would try to recreate brain lesions in. And then you you started with you started with speciation yep. of a particular tropical fruit fly yep. on a particular tropical fruit. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and and it's gotten more
2: broad since then, right? Now you work on everything from viruses to, to toads, toads. Toads? Toads. spadefoot toads. So what are you doing with toads then? You were a fly guy. So yeah, so basically what we're trying to do is develop genetics and genomic tools for working with toads that are very interesting ecologies. A female toad will sometimes make a decision to mate with the wrong species intentionally. Frog biology is, these, these toads live in the southwest, in the desert of the southwest U.S. So
1: Arizona, Arizona, New Arizona, New Mexico,
2: Northern Mexico, Colorado, West Texas. They get seasonal rains and they form shallow ponds. When it rains really hard, those ponds are completely evaporated, sometimes in just a matter of days or certainly in a matter of weeks. One of the species normally lives in wetter environments but has recently moved into this drier environment. And what you'll notice is that if the female Toad can detect she's in a rapidly drying pond. She will mate with the more native desert species and have kids, the hybrids, will, you know, are sick because, you know, like a mule, hybrids do you know, mule, which is a hybrid from horse and donkey, things aren't right in hybrids. The hybrids are sicker, but enough of them survive and they're able to mature faster because they have the rapid development genes of the desert one that female's got a greater chance of getting her kids through to the next generation than when who only made it with her, her, her normal uh, species. Genes. So this is the ecological pattern. The question is what's happening genetically and genomically as a result of that? Do we see a reshuffling of the genes between the species? Do we see um, bigger, more similarity between the products? the toads of the two species that live right near each other? Do you see uh, 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 then toads that live from very far apart? Do we see, are we sort of seeing a third kind of almost hybrid species starting to emerge in these areas of overlap? These are all genetic and genomics questions. So that's where I'm the tech guy, I'm the technology guy. How do we actually get that sort of information from these codes which can be weird in the lab, like
1: you know, no one's worked on them this way. So she gets to go out with the butterfly net and catch her yeah, things, yeah. And, and then she drops them in your lab in a bucket, and they... I grind them up and take the DNA and protein out. <laughs> <laughs> That's about <laughs> what it boils down to.
0: So you're like a chef, there.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can sort of... <laughs> yes, yes. She's the, she's the fisherman out on the sea gathering the, 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 the interesting critters. I just slice them up and put them on a plate. <laughs>
0: That's all for this week. I'm off to spam a lot. VSI is produced by me, Randall Hayes, at North Carolina Agricultural and Bloody Technical State University. Although that really sounded more Australian than British. I'm not very good at this sort of thing. You can tune in at iTunes. You can subscribe to the podcast at iTunes. iTunes or at our website, which is variationselectioninheritance.podbean.com.
1: Thanks for listening.